Part six, chapter thirty five of the Beach of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Beach of Dreams by H. D. Verstagpool. Part six, chapter thirty five. Marseille. On board the Carsaconi, the girl had broken down as though all the exhaustion she had defied had waited for that moment to fall upon her. But the energy that had held her above defeat and had given her hope when things seemed hopeless was there, undestroyed, and when the turning point came she rallied swiftly. She came on deck one morning where Bathurst lay a point invisible beyond the blue sea to starboard, and sitting in a deck chair made friends with the other passengers. It seemed to her almost impossible that the same world should hold Kerguelen, and at the same time this paradise of azure blue sky and tepid wind. Raft had told her stories before reaching Cape Town, and the loss of the Gaston de Paris was now old news in Europe, and the fact that of all the Gaston's crowd, only the beautiful Cleo de Bomsart had been saved. Raft had joined the crew of the Carsaconi, sleeping in the forecastle, where there were several English-speaking sailors, and as much out of his element as a man used only to masts and spars can be on a steamboat. However, he swabbed decks and did odd jobs without a grumble, and he was swabbing the deck on the morning she came up. He dropped the business for a moment to take the two hands she held out to him. All through that time below she had been wanting Raft and his big hand to pull her through, satisfied, knowing he was on board and all right, but wanting him all the same. On the old bark once or twice had come the stray thought of how Raft's figure would accommodate itself against the background of the world she knew. Well, here was the world she knew, or part of it, a deck clean as a ballroom floor and as spacious, passengers in deck chairs reading novels, and a manicured French surgeon ready to talk art or philosophy to her polished but rather narrow of shoulder. And against all that stood Raft, rough and in the clothes he had worn on the beach, for there was not a man on board whose clothes would have fitted him comfortably. Well, he was not incongruous with this background, simply because he destroyed it. In a ballroom it would have been the same. He carried with him his background of high black cliffs and miles of beach and flying gulls and breaking sea, and in a flash came to her the fact that he dwarfed and belittled the other people around just as nature dwarfs and belittles art. She held both his hands for a moment, managing to pat them. Somehow, as she held them, asking him what on earth he was doing with the swab he had just dropped, she had an idea that the ship's people had put him to work, but before the idea had risen to indignation heat, he reassured her. I must be doing, said Raft. Not that there's much to be at in this old kettle. 
You've got your legs back. Well, that's good. I had it out with that doctor chap, and he told me that you were going from day to day, but I've been wanting this sight of you. He put his hand on her shoulder as he might a pal's. Then he crossed his arms. And well you look, said he. Dr. Petit, said the girl, speaking in French. This is Raft, the bravest and best man in the world, as you will know when I tell you all. Shake hands with him. The doctor shook hands. The passengers and the first officers, across the bridge canvas, watched all this with curiosity. They knew something, but they did not know all. They did that night when she had told them as best she could. After that she met him often on deck, giving him a word or stopping for a chat. And it was now that she began to think and make plans as to the future. Raft had become part of herself. They were bound together as perhaps no two such contrary beings had ever been bound. The idea of love, the idea of marriage, all conventional ideas as between grown-ups of opposite sex were as absurd in relation to them as they would have been in relation to two children who had grown attached one to the other. As regarded one another, they were in fact two children, for Raft had never been anything but a child, and Kerguelen and Raft combined had awakened the primitive and the child in her, giving her the power of affection that makes a little child throw its arms round the neck of a dog. But the world could not understand that, and Raft to the world was a rough sailor man, and she to the world was Cleo de Bomsart. She would lie awake at night listening to the pounding of the screws and thinking of this, contrasting the figure of Raft with the world she knew, and the world she knew with the figure of Raft. Madame de Brie, her nearest relation, would pass before her mind's eye with her gold eyeglasses, and the Comtesse de Mirandoli, and a host of others. And the queer thing was that the vaguest feeling of antagonism tinged her mind towards these estimable people. They seemed forgeries, impudent forgeries of the handwriting that had first written the word man on earth. She had seen the original writing. She felt also towards him the antagonism of the child to the grown-up, and of a person who can't explain to the person who stands waiting for an explanation. Then she would laugh quietly to herself, for no woman, surely, was ever in a similar position. Then, casting her mind back, she would sometimes choke a little with tears in her throat, tears for herself, dying of loneliness, and for the hand that had brought her back from death. They passed the entrance of the Straits and Gibraltar, and one bright winter's morning they entered the harbour of Marseilles, with Marseilles before them blazing in the sun, and the bugles of Fort St. John answering the crying of the gulls and the drums of Fort St. Nicholas. Cleo was dressed in the same clothes she had worn on her escape from the Gaston de Paris. She had borrowed a hat from one of the ladies on board, and stockings, and other things from another lady, but she still wore round her waist the leather belt with the empty knife sheath. 
as she stood on deck now waiting whilst the catacassoni berth at the wharf alongside a great messagetti steamer she carried over her arm the oilskin coat and by its elastic band the southwester they were old friends then when the hawsers had been passed and the gangplank was being run out she saw amongst the crowd on the wharf monsieur de brie and madame de brie also a number of well-dressed people parisians some of them then she was being embraced by madame de brie and trying at the same time to acknowledge the salute of monsieur bonvalot her lawyer and man of affairs a stout pale man with long dundiri whiskers who had come from paris to receive her all this crowd had not come purely on account of cleo besides the people interested in her there were several friends and relations of prince selim also his lawyer i have taken rooms at the hotel noelle's said madame de brie and i have brought you some clothes oh my poor child what you must have suffered but why did the people on board not lend you some better things oh my clothes are all right said cleo people wanted to lend me things but i am quite comfortable in these she was looking about in search of raft who was nowhere to be seen then she was seized by the rest by the comtesse de mirandoli by madame de flori and several others who had stopped at marseilles on their way to monte carlo to meet the carcassoni and greet the girl who had alone survived the wreck of the gaston de paris some of these people knew her only slightly but once a person becomes famous or notorious it is astonishing how slight acquaintanceships blossom into full friendships several photographers from the illustrated papers were amongst the crowd and a pathé operator was on the quay cleo was already recovering that sixth sense which one might call the social sense and as she talked almost to half a dozen people at once answering questions and receiving felicitations this sixth sense told her quite plainly that she was being criticized by her felicitators that in their eyes she was a guy that the old velour hat she had borrowed the hair that showed beneath it her face which had still upon it a reflection of kerkuglian her old skirt and coat all these things singly and taken together were exciting in the minds of these parisians a pity which was not unrelated to humour she did not mind she was looking for raft it seemed to her that all these people excellent in their way had a tinge of unreality about them on the voyage she had sometimes vaguely dreaded that raft might be pushed away from her despite herself by the contrast between him and her own order it had come to her that the difference between the beach of kerkuglian and the avenue makaloff might take her like a giant of mind and divorce her from her allegiance to him that the good companion the true friend the person she loved might alter completely under the touch of social alchemy raft was impossible she knew that 
more impossible even than a sea elephant from that far beach where life was real and paris a dream impossible in paris where life was false and the far beach a dream raft at a dinner party raft at one of those elegant afternoons where the talk would run on the politics of the moment on symbolism on bergson or iturino or the works of othon fries he could not be her companion in that place in that atmosphere within leagues of those people she was not thinking that now these people around her seemed strangers they had in fact always been strangers strangers who had kissed her conversed with her dined with her but strangers the one true living warm friend the only one she had ever known was raft it was the penguins and sea bulls over again the polite bowing absolutely correct penguins the warm lumping living sea bulls her heart chilled by stephanotis scented kisses words of felicitation and the fat smiles of men in tall hats and tight buttoned overcoats chilled by monsieur de brie's gold-rimmed eyeglasses chilled by a social state that had never warmed her cried out for raft kerguelen and that beach where even now the sea bulls might be lingering seemed a warm and blissful vision real alive a place where life meant living ah here he came he had been helping to fix a hawser at the bows she ran towards him ah there you are now you are coming with me i have told the captain and he said this morning it would be all right as you were not signed on right said raft but where are we going to a hotel he looked about him he saw the crowd on deck but he did not connect it with her he was out of his reckoning he had never thought of what would happen in port as regarded her or where he would go or what he would do making plans was not in his way in the ordinary course of things he would have gone to the british consulate and the shipwrecked mariners people would have returned him carriage paid to england he had always been in the hands of others and of chance she he had always called her she and here be it said he did not know her name never having asked she had now taken him into her hands and he felt vaguely that she was a power on this new beach where he was stranded had you told him that she was a woman of society and very wealthy his idea of her power would not have been increased he knew nothing of wealth or society she was she in her old dress that he knew so well and still carrying the southwester he had fetched from the cave where she had done that chap in and as for any idea of being under an obligation to her for food or housing he had none he would have done the same for her yet to tell the truth the docks with no money in his pocket and the cold prospect of brilliant marseilles had made him feel adrift like a lost child civilization had affected him as it had affected her so that something now made him put his hand on her shoulder to get the touch of her and she knowing that every eye in all that party behind her was upon them 
took the great hand and held it and patted it. It was as well to take her stand at once, though she was scarcely bothering about that. Then, still holding his hand, she came along that white deck towards the gangplank. The officers knew, and, as they bade her good-bye, they nodded to Raft. But the Parisians knew nothing but that Cleo had gone clearly mad, and that that awful sailor had placed his hand on her shoulder familiarly. There were several automobiles waiting by the wharf, and Madame de Brie, half dumb and slightly agitated, having pointed out the car she had reserved for Cleo, the girl introduced Raft. This is Raft who saved my life, said Cleo. Then she took Raft by the arm and pushed him into the seat beside the chauffeur. Having done that, she got into the car, following Madame de Brie. The Comtesse de Mirandoli got in, also, followed by Monsieur de Brie and his gold-eyed glasses. The mistral was blowing so that the windows of the car had to be kept closed. Used to fresh air, the girl nearly choked at first with the stuffiness of the car. The olfactory nerve is really a prolongation of the brain, as though the brain, distrusting the other senses, had pushed out a trustworthy scout to see what the world and its contents were really like. The sense of smell never lies. It is of all senses the truest, and it handed along without comment to the brain of Cleo the faint perfume of the Stephanotis affected by Madame de Brie, and of the Yoya Yoya affected by the Comtesse de Mirandoli, also traces from the varnish and upholstery of the car. Who, my dear, is that man? asked Madame de Brie. She had almost said, that dreadful man, but she had checked herself. Man? Oh, that is Raft. He saved my life. How delightful, said the Countess, and he seems quite a character. Quite, said Madame de Brie half-heartedly. But, my dear Cleo, you will excuse an old woman for suggesting it. Your generosity must be on its guard. He placed his hand on your shoulder, quite familiarly, it seemed to me. Well, said the choking Cleo, why should he not? I have slept with my head on his chest on a rock, and I have stabbed a man who was trying to kill him. Between us we fought a whole crowd of Chinamen. He had a harpoon and I had a knife, and we beat them and took their ship. Do you mind having the window a wee bit open? I feel rather faint. That's better, said she to the speechless other ones. I'm so used to fresh air that I can't bear to be closed in. But, my dear Cleo, suddenly broke out the old lady, what do you intend to do with him? Do with him? Nothing. He's my friend. That's all. Ah, here we are. The car had drawn up in the courtyard of the hotel. End of chapter 35